Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, we'll talk to one of my favorite Instagram artists, Catherine Rains, about her triple whammy of devastation, a breast cancer diagnosis, a divorce, and being pulled away from her beloved art. Also on the show today, I'm answering the super common question about how to talk about death and getting older with aging parents, and I'll talk about the invisible pressure of growing through hard times. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches the transformational power of grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. I am so stoked to be with you today. I want to ask you this week, are you a perfectionist or a control freak? Do you like to have everything in order and lined up just right? Do you like to know what's coming up next? I certainly do. And that's why grief was so shocking and so rocking to my world. You might have perfectionist or control freak in your head too, so grief might be shocking you and rocking you right now. What is this? One of the biggest characteristics about grief, definitely one that that people recognize the most quickly, is how unpredictable it is, how imperfect it is, and how impossible it is to control. Every day in grief can look and feel totally different from the next. Every moment can be that way. And that just drives the perfectionist in us and the control freak in us and the need to know in us right up the wall. We see a lot of stories in the media and in the movies, and I even share them here on Coming Back. We see a lot of stories of people who have grown through their grief. They've grown through death and divorce and diagnosis and stillbirth and suicide and pet loss and abuse and career loss and dysfunction. And I love it because these stories and these interviews bring my belief and my mantra to life that even through grief, we are growing. But I'll tell you that when you're in it, when you're in the thick of grief and grieving, when you're in the closet crying or staring at the ceiling at night, or just trying to hold it together during a meeting at work, or comforting your kids as they wake up to the reality that things will never be the same again. That doesn't feel like growing. It doesn't. It really doesn't. It feels like, let's see, it feels like struggling and suffering and backsliding and darkness and agony and fear and and this whole over-encompassing idea of I'm not supposed to be here. There's this shame that comes with grieving sometimes because we're drowning in these stories. We're inundated with these stories of finding growth and positivity and inspiration and hope through our pain. And yet in our own worlds and in our own lives, we don't have hope. We don't have positivity. We're not going around telling everybody about how much our grief has inspired us. So today at the top of the show, Grief Growers, I want to take some of the pressure off. 
Yes, I share stories of coming back here on the podcast. Yes, our media is swamped with posts about finding light and joy in the midst and the aftermath of disaster. And yes, people in your own world, in your own life, seem to be handling grief really, really well. But our experience, our personal experience of grief doesn't always feel like growing. It can't. It won't. And from somebody who's been there before, it's not supposed to. I'm going to share a truth with you today, grief growers. I could not have done this while I was intensely grieving. I could not have done this, made this podcast gone public with my feelings, been interviewed about my loss while I was intensely grieving. I could not have. You guys, we put so much pressure on ourselves to right the ship and to make things perfect and normal and right again and to get on with our lives already so we can wrap up our disasters and our losses in this neat little package that taught us something. But it doesn't feel that way when we're still actively grieving it. It doesn't. It can't. It's not supposed to. And that's really frustrating and challenging. And some days it just feels like the world is going to close in on us because what we're seeing every day surely, surely must be our new reality. But I want to take some of the pressure off today. I'll say it again. I am taking the pressure off today, grief growers, for you and for me and for everybody else who's grieving. Just just breathe today. You don't have to be consciously, actively, or intentionally growing in order to grow. You are growing through your grief and through this life experience no matter what. Let me say that again. You don't have to be consciously, actively, or intentionally growing in order to grow. You are growing right now no matter what. In my own life and with my own story, after my mom died, I remember... I did a lot of grasping at resources and searching for answers and stories and dwelling in this headspace of, I need to get out of this garbage storm right now. And some of that drive and some of those resources did help me come back. I talk about them a lot, but what I'm learning now, the growth that I'm waking up to now is that even on days when I wasn't quote unquote doing anything to recover from my grief, I was still recovering. I was still coming back. I was still growing. I didn't see it, but it was true. And those days were getting me one step closer to being able to talk about it and being able to share it with others. If you're a perfectionist or a control freak or just a human being who wants things to have a routine and stay the same for once, please know that you're not crazy. I have been here where you are before. I have walked this road. We, all of us, who are grieving, we have seen this space where it doesn't feel like you're growing and that nothing will ever be the same again. And there's this intense, intense, intense pressure to make things right again and to learn from it and to put a shiny face on it and a moral of the story. And it's true, life won't be the same. Things can't go back, but ease up, you guys. 
is up on this pressure, grief growers, the pressure you feel to find closure and tie everything up and jump back on the wagon as soon as possible. That pressure is big and it's real and even your friends and your family ask you about it. So how are you doing with this? Why are you still acting this way? It doesn't feel like you've moved on. The world notices when all is not right with us. But you have my permission today and always to set down this idea that you need to be doing something with your grief because you are growing. I'm getting chills right now. You're growing through your grief, whether you are actively seeking growth or not. Every single day is a milestone. And with time and with continued loving attention and the support of others, one day you will be in a space where you'll be ready to talk about it or share it with others if you want to. But for today, this is the message I have for you. Just trust me that you're in the right place. I know it's hard, but it is 100% without a doubt true. Even in the slogging through, you are getting grief right. You're grieving correctly. You're doing everything right. You really are. I love you. Because even through grief, whether we see it or not, whether we try for it or not, we are growing. I'll be on Facebook Live tomorrow, October 12th, talking about the invisible pressure of growing through your losses. You can find my Facebook page and be alerted when the broadcast begins at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide. Next up, I'll answer a popular question about parents who are getting a little older. So I'm a member of a question and answer app called Campfire, where experts on various topics give one minute audio answers to users questions. And as an expert on grief in the past month, I have gotten the following questions. Do you have any suggestions on how to deal with an aging parent? And as an adult only child, what are some resources on planning potential care for older parents? So I'm fascinated. Something's in the water because people seem to have aging parents or parents getting older on the brain. And this is a grief-related question because getting older includes loss. Loss of ability, loss of autonomy or independence, loss of identity or who you think you are, loss of friends, and of course, the big and final loss that a lot of people are implying with these questions, which is death, loss of life. And of course, the children of these parents want to know how to cope with these losses and adjust as their parents are getting on in years. So basically what these questions are asking by saying deal with and planning potential care for is how do I start this conversation with my parents? How do I let them know that I'm aware of their aging and they're getting closer to death and I want to talk about it, that I'm open to having that conversation? So because I only get one minute of recording time to respond on Campfire, I'm immediately directing people to an article by The Atlantic called What Aging Parents Really Want from Their Kids. And I'll put a link to this article in the show notes. The author, her name is Claire Berman, wrote the book Caring for Yourself While Caring for Your Aging Parents. And this article is actually a follow-up to her book where she actually talks to aging parents. Basically, the article states that one of the biggest fears aging parents have is a loss of control as they get older. 
So what we can do for our parents is start to talk to them about how we feel about their getting older. So things like expressing concern, but not criticizing them, expressing worry or a desire to open up the conversation, but not constantly check up on them, express what you're feeling and what you're seeing, but not telling them how to feel or what to see. It's a super fine line between independence and control and taking care of and criticizing and helping and making them feel like they're no longer competent at what they do. And for this, every single family, every single family with aging parents or parents getting older, every family needs to have its own conversation. Just like grief, there is no one size fits all solution. So besides the Atlantic article, which is a great place to start if you're opening up the conversation with an aging parent, here's some intuitive grief guide wisdom from me. So from the outside and to me, I think there's three major categories that you can address with your parents when you're talking about them getting older and eventually dying. The first one is legal, and this is guardianship, wills, and power of attorney. The second is physical, and this is a really big one. This is physical ability and well-being. This is everything from being able to drive, how well they can see, whether or not they need someone to help take medications or deliver some kind of medical service. And emotional, this is identity, mental health, and happiness. So to start one of these conversations, you need to create a window of some kind. So to create a window in legal, maybe you're making your own will and want to know when your parents last updated theirs, or even if they have one, that's a great place to ask, hey dad, I am headed down to meet with my lawyer on Tuesday about making a will. Do you and mom have one too? And maybe for some bonus points in this and for some autonomy in them, in this, ask for tips from them on how to make out a good will, even if you've already done your research. And this could help them feel like they have some input in your end of life matters and can open the door to them sharing more about what's in theirs as well. And this is not like a sneaky secretive thing, but uh, just you getting more reassurance and information that those things are set in place should something happen. Or maybe you just had a friend in the hospital and it really scared you. Or maybe your family had a grandparent or a relative die that didn't have a designated power of attorney and something happened as a result. You can say something like, hey mom, that was really hard. And we got into a lot of fights with grandma's second husband about what should happen while she was in the hospital. Do you have power of attorney in place? Who is it? For physical, maybe you're playing with your kids and your parents are around and you're noticing them having trouble with stairs or with balance or with reaching. Something like, hey mom, I noticed that you don't put anything on the top shelves anymore. Why is that? Is it something I can help with? So don't immediately jump in offering solutions. Don't say, I can build you some more shelves. We can get you a step stool. We can, you know, do something different for you. Don't jump in offering solutions first. Start with asking them what they think about the situation, and even if they want help, if it's working for them, let them continue. Also for physical, maybe you're at the doctor's office with one of your parents and you get news about an updated care routine for them. Maybe say something like, this seems like a lot to digest and a lot to do, dad. Do you and mom feel ready to take on this new schedule for medications? And again, this is kind of the same thing where you're gauging how independent and how much uh, how much help they actually want 
with their life. So don't say, oh, this sounds like a lot to do. I'm going to hire, you know, a live-in nurse or a nurse to come see you a couple times a week, or we'll call the neighbor to check on you. Say, how are you feeling about taking all of this on? So there's some autonomy and some choice and some decisions that they get to make in there. For emotional, always start with how you're feeling first. So something like, hey, dad, my sister and I are concerned that we're going to see you less if you move into an assisted living center. Are you worried about that too? See if your parents can match emotions with you or contrast emotions with you. Any feelings that they bring up are valid and worth talking about, but this is a really great way to kind of gauge where they are. Or uh, emotional in another situation is something like, hey mom, I know you used to identify a lot as a stay-at-home mom and that was a time in your life that you really loved when we were growing up, but now that we've got our own families and you're getting older, I wonder if that identity is changing for you. How do you see yourself now? Or is there anything else you'd like to explore as you're getting older? And opening the door for them to speak to their new identity, or maybe their feeling of a lack thereof can help you tease out what avenues they'd like to explore next, if any, like if they'd like to reminisce on old times, or maybe take up an entirely new identity or an entirely new hobby as they get older. I'll give you one disclaimer here and say, unless there is an urgent legal or medical reason to make a snap decision uh, with aging parents, the best way, in my opinion and personal experience, is to deal with and prepare for aging parents by starting to talk about their wishes. Give people information about how you're feeling, try and get as much information as you can about the situation that you're in, and then speak up to what you're noticing going on in their lives. Ask if they see or feel anything changing in their lives or their bodies. Express your own concern and worry and fear for the future, but don't assume that they have that yet. Or if they do, don't assume that you know how they're feeling about it. See if they feel the same. These are tricky conversations, grief growers, but I know, I know, I know you've got this. This uh, is a big topic, and I would love to hear your suggestions for talking to aging parents. So please call in by leaving a voicemail or texting 312-725-3043 or emailing shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. You can find both of these contacts in the show notes. And if you'd like to ask your own question to be featured on the show, you can contact that way as well. Next up, we'll talk to Catherine Raines about her threefold grief experience and how her loss informs the beautiful, heartfelt art that she makes and shares. Despite being labeled the unartistic one growing up, Catherine Raines created a collage on an inspired whim at age 33, and her passion for art was born in a flash. This simple beginning eventually led to her selling her art and quitting her day job to create a business doing what she most loved. For four years, she was a thriving full-time artist, having the time of her life creating and selling what she loved. And then the unexpected happened. This is where her story of grief and healing really begins. Today, Catherine is a mixed-media collage artist who has followed her dream of being a full-time artist in spite of having a demanding traveling day job teaching the Myers-Briggs personality tool around the country. She takes her art with her on the road and is a bit of an Instagram star known as, you guessed it, the hotel artist. This interview was recorded via phone. Catherine, welcome to the show. I absolutely have loved following you on Instagram over the past few months and seeing the work that you produce. I want to start in a different place than we normally do here on Coming Back and have you tell us how it is you got to be doing the art that you're doing. 
Well, I am what I call an unexpected artist. Um, that wasn't part of my life plan by any means. I actually was in the middle of a career development job. So I worked for a college and I was really competent at what I did. And I had prepared my whole life actually to basically take a larger career development job at a college. But I was very, very stressed. And I actually didn't like my job very much. And I thought it was pretty ironic that I was a career development director and hated my job. So mm-hmm. I started doing career development on myself. And it began with me just making a long list of all the things I'd love to do as a kid that no one told me to do. So I found the word collage in the middle of this list. And in my family of origin, I was considered the unartistic one. So I can't draw or paint. But the word collage, I thought, well, certainly, you know, I could do that. So one Sunday, I pulled out all the catalogs in the house, like the L.L. Beans and the Sears catalogs, and I ripped them up, and I put them back together in a collage. And I had so much freaking fun doing it that I started doing it every day for three years. And I just had piles and piles and piles of these collages, but they were really juvenile looking. And I know they were because my colleagues and my students would come into my office and see these framed pictures of my collages all over. And they all said the same thing. They all said, oh, you have children. And I don't have children. (laughs) But that didn't bother me at all because these were my soul hanging on the wall. I thought they were, you know, they were just who I was. So that's how it started. But it was really a hobby. And it was a way to relieve stress from this very demanding job. Um, at some point, I actually left my college job and went to work for the publisher of the Myers-Briggs, which is what I currently do. And I eventually took an art class um, during that time by a magazine collage artist. And in just one week's time, my skills ramped up considerably to the point where I actually loved what I did. I mean, I always thought they were great in my soul, but they weren't actually like something some, somebody would want other than me. So I took one of my new collages and I Xeroxed it and sent it to a friend in California. And she framed it, put it on her wall, and a rich client came in and offered to buy it. And then that changed my entire trajectory. I said, oh, my God, if I could make a living doing this, I'd be just like, that'd be like the best thing in the whole world. But it took me like several years after that to actually do something with it. I actually um, just, I did a tremendous amount of research. I went to every gallery opening, every art festival, talked to every artist I'd get my hands on to find out how you make a living as an artist because I didn't want to be a starving one. I wanted to be a thriving one. So after four years of this, I eventually quit my job working for the Myers-Briggs company and went to do full-time art. So that's how it started. I was lucky enough to be able to do full-time art for four years, and I was in complete bliss most of the time. Some of the time, I was also in complete agony because learning how to be a full-time artist and depending on that for an income was also really hard at the same time. But the art of it was amazing. I just had so much fun. And then... Um, at the four-year point, um, I had gotten to the point where I was making, you know, a fairly decent amount of money. I was paying for one-third of my family income. I was married, and so I had one-third of the bills on my side. So I felt pretty good about that, and I was growing. But I went for my annual mammogram, and I came back. I was 44 years old, and I got a diagnosis of breast cancer. 
And I was shocked off my gourd because I am very healthy. I have no history in my family at all. You know, I eat well, I exercise. I'm a very unlikely candidate. But here it was. I had breast cancer. So this is kind of when, like, I had a kind of a three-part kind of uh, devastation happened, like, right in the same kind of time period. That was the first part. So I was in the middle of trying to figure out what to do with this. You know, when you get a diagnosis like that, it's not like an obvious thing, like, you should do this. I had all kinds of options that I had to figure out. And I was scared and, you know, crying sometimes. But throughout the whole the whole period of that, I kept bringing myself back to something I had learned from Eckhart Tolle, which is a, mm-hmm. a new earth he wrote. The idea that in this moment, I was actually fine. So even though I was scared off, off my gourd that, you know, I could die or I was going to lose a breast, but in the moment, I was just fine. So throughout the entire time, I just kept bringing myself back, which actually kept me really grounded for everything that was going to come. So I eventually decided to get a mastectomy just because it was the most logical thing to do. And as I was healing from that, I just kept bringing myself back to what's really now. Am I in pain? Am I okay? You know, am I am I going to die? No, right now I'm not dead. Actually, right now I'm thriving. You know, I'm I have time off. I'm I get to kind of meditate and journal. This is actually a pretty good thing. So I kept bringing myself back to what was true in the moment, which was kind of my coping mechanism that worked really well. And as I was actually waiting for the doctor, I was I had just had a breast surgery, and I was waiting for the doctor to tell me whether I would get chemotherapy or not because it was not obvious whether that would happen. Um, my old corporate job um, with the Myers-Briggs called me and said, would you like to come back full-time and do basically 45 weeks on the on the road? So 45 weeks out of 52, next year, you're on the road. And it's a lot of money. Would you like it? And my heart said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm going back to art as fast as I can. But you know, I really believe that when things are presented to you, they're presented to you for a reason. And maybe I don't know what's best for me. So I made this little deal with the universe. And I said, if I, if I don't get chemotherapy, so if I'm, if I'm, if so nothing, I don't need it. I don't need chemotherapy. Then I'll go back to the, and do the gig for one year. I'm only doing it for a year though. I'll say I'm working longer, but I'll, <laughs> I'm leaving after a year. But if I do get chemotherapy, I'll go back to art and I'll focus on my, my body and my soul. So lo and behold, I did not get chemotherapy, which was lovely. And I went back to the, my job for a year. So meanwhile, I was going through all of this stuff, you know, trying to be as present as possible through the journey. And my husband was going through his grieving process. He, at first, he was scared I was going to die. His own mother had died uh, about a decade earlier from breast cancer. So he was pretty freaked out about what had happened. And then eventually, he started mourning his own potential death. You know, he was going through his own crisis. Like, is this all I want in life? Is What else do I want? Am I in the right place? And that led to him having an affair with someone that we had been actually socializing with that I thought was a friend of mine. And he asked for a divorce and went in to live with her. So... Because I had gone back to work about a year or two earlier from that, I was actually in a place that it was okay for me 
to be single, although I didn't want to be single. I was actually in love mm-hmm. with my husband at the time it happened. I Now I was financially okay. I had health insurance. I had a salary. So then I realized why the deal with the universe worked, <laughs> that I was meant to go back to work because it actually lined up beautifully that I could actually take care of myself. If I hadn't, being a full-time artist without having that kind of backup system, it would have been harder. I could have done it, but I would have been struggling quite a bit, you know, for the health insurance and just the regular steady income is harder. When he left, it was the only time in my entire life that I've ever used the word devastation. And that's what, it, that's all I can, the only word that would describe it. Because I, my, the, you know, breast cancer was a piece of cake compared to having your entire life been, you know, <clears throat> totally upended on top of you. I went through the most intense grieving I've ever gone through in my life. I, um, I, I basically cried on the kitchen floor intensely about every three or four days. So I'd cry really, really like wholeheartedly. And then I'd get out of my system and I would go about my day and I kept coming back to the present moment. Like what's true right now? What's true right now is I'm thriving. I'm happy. I have a good job. I have great friends. And then something would trigger me. I'd look around the house, you know, see a memory, and I would be on the floor again, crying. And this kind of cycle of being just completely okay with where I was and completely honest with the grief lasted for about 10 weeks. And in the middle middle of all that, you know, I had counselors who were helping me, and, you know, I was getting some support. But most of it really came from me being just completely present with whatever I was feeling but not, not allowing myself to stay in the grief when it really wasn't true in that moment. In the moment, for the most part, I was happy. And I kept saying to myself, somehow, some way, this too is for my highest good. That everything up into my entire, everything that's happened to me in my entire life that is so-called bad had always been something that had turned into something pretty amazing. Wasn't always obvious in the beginning, but in the end, like going back to my job, that was the last thing I ever wanted. But it turned out pretty good. So I got through all of that, and eventually I got to the point where I was healthy enough, emotionally emotionally healthy, that I could start dating, and I did. And I actually found an amazing man that I married two years ago that I adore, and I have been back at my job now for, well, at the point that I got married, I'd been back at my job for 10 years, and I had done almost no art in 10 years. And the entire time, I was loving my job because I kept getting better and better training assignments uh, with the Myers-Briggs, and that right now, I'm a certification trainer for them. And I love, love, love the work, but I've always mourned that I gave up my art. And every time I look at my art around the house or people mention it, it's a real sadness for me. So two years ago, 2015 in January, I sat myself down and I gave myself a good talking to. And I said, you know, I don't want to give my job up, at least not at the moment I don't, but I want art. You know, that is my calling for life. And I made a plan in 2015 and the plan looked like this. I made a schedule for when I was at home, because I'm home about a third of the time. So I get up at 5 a.m., I do art for about an hour or two, and then I do my day gig, which is in my home. And then the other two-thirds of the time, I'm on the road in cities all around the country, and I do art at night. So by from like 7 to 10 or 11 at night, I do art in my hotel room. And I stick with that. 
and I've made a lot of art because of that. The other thing I did was I, I realized that if I brought my art supplies on the road with me, I could do a whole bunch of art. So I am the opposite of a light packer. I pack two 50-pound bags. One of those bags is just full of paint, canvas, paintbrushes, a drop cloth, you know, everything I need to basically transform my hotel room into an art studio for myself at night. The third thing I did was once I realized this is really, you know, I had to somehow integrate this, these two lives, my art and my Myers-Briggs life, I started saving money like a banshee. And I've always been a person that lived under her means, always. Like I buy a house that's way under what I can afford. I have a 10-year-old car. Um, but I really kind of ramped it up. You know, I put myself on a really strict budget and with the idea that if the opportunity ever presented itself again, that it felt right to do, I would be, I would have the savings that I wouldn't have to depend on my art, at least initially, you know, so I'd have a little grace mm-hmm. period, you know, until I get myself ramped up with art again. It just so happens that two months ago, um, I was talking to my boss, who I adore, and I just proposed the idea that what would she think if I actually quit my job and just worked as a contractor one week a month? And I was completely shocked that she thought that was the most brilliant idea because it actually served my company as well. So as of January 1, after 12 years of basically mourning the loss of my art, I am going to be a full-time artist again, just working one week a month just to Basically, you know, subsidize to make sure that just to take the pressure, you know, off having to make money from art, although that's certainly my intention. <laughs> I want to make a living from my art. Um, but at the moment, I won't have to, at least initially. And that's it. That's my story. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited by all of this. First off, congratulations on being able to come back home to your art and circle around to it full time Thank because you. that's such a huge it's a huge joy for anybody who loves to create and I think we all yeah. inherently love to create we just have to find what we love to create and you have found it and so being able to come home to it and be able to do it all the time very very soon is like this impending gift it's like the, it's like going to sleep the night before a field trip where you're like so excited about waking up the oh. next day because you know you're just about to have such a blast yeah, I, I, I have a, a similar analogy I say that it's like waiting for Christmas to come, you know, you know, it's going to be incredible. But, you know, the trick is between now and January 1 and focus on just being really, really present with what I have now, which is I'm doing art in hotel rooms. And that's good, too. And I really, really, I mean, I truly love my job with the Myers-Briggs, but it's my vocation. It's not my calling. You know, it's something I love to do. Yet nothing comes close to making art. So, the whole thing came about really because I I have a philosophy of life that you just surrender to what's being presented to you, even though sometimes it's the shittiest thing in the world that's being presented, that somehow everything that comes into my life is for my good, as opposed to something to punish me or something hard. But I also don't deny that it's hard. Yet I'm, you know, I constantly come back to, well, why, you know, can I just be okay with this and actually love this? And somehow magically the whole thing transforms, you know, into where I'm meant to be, even though it might take a decade (laughs) for 
report to actually give here, which it has in this case. I have a recurring theme that keeps coming up for you as I was listening to you tell your story. And I wrote down the Eckhart Tolle quotes that have guided you through. And it seems like you have, you're insisting on being alive. There's, there's just like this insistence that you're present. There's this insistence that things are happening in your life for your highest good. There's an insistence that things are going to work out and you're going to be okay. And in this moment, that is where you're meant to live. I want to know for you where all of these mentalities came from. Like, did they come from being diagnosed with breast cancer, the divorce, the, the losing your art and mourning that? Or did, are these ingrained from before all of that happened from previous losses? Hmm. What a great question, Shelby. You know, it probably was, you know, resilience that I learned as a child. It originally came from, although I wasn't taught this, but I was, I was raised by a schizophrenic mother. And, mm. you know, I just learned early on that it's going to turn out okay, even when it looks like crap. That somehow, if I stay present with where I am and don't dwell in the tragedy, you know, whatever the tragedy is, that it kind of guides me through without getting kind of mired down in the muck of the pain. Not that the pain's not real because it's been real a lot, but I, Somehow, I, I just don't allow myself to stay there. But the kind of probably the real turning point was when I found myself in my college job. You know, it was a job that I prepared for, you know, for a decade to get there. And I really hated my job. You know, so I repeated it over and over again that I hate my job. I started this mantra that went like this. I said, this moment is my destiny. So instead of resisting where I was, I started looking at every painful thing that was in front of me as somehow I'm supposed to be here because I am here. When you're on the kitchen floor, that's one of the hardest things to embrace is when you're on the kitchen floor. I want to know what you were telling yourself in those moments. On the kitchen floor, I was actually in, I was trying to get rid of all the thoughts in my head and just fully get into the crime. There wasn't, I wasn't trying to get myself out of crying. Instead, I was kind of like almost hugging myself saying, it's okay. You know, like cry, crying is what you're supposed to be doing right now. Cause that's what's coming up. But by fully crying, you know, it could last anywhere from 20 minutes to two hours of crying. Then all that energy goes. And then I'm back to my normal self, which is everything's fine. And then I would just constantly bring myself to, well, what is right now? What is true now? And what's true right now is I'm fine. I'm not sad. But then, you know, I, you know, 20 minutes from now, I could walk around the corner and see a picture of something and I could cry again. But I just continually brought myself back to what is, what's really happening now. Were there ever people in your life that were concerned with the mentality of right now I'm fine and worried that maybe you were glossing over your pain or not acknowledging it? Like who was supporting you in all of this and what were their thoughts on how you were reacting to the cancer and, and your former husband and, and leaving your art? I don't think anyone ever thought I was glossing over it because I never did gloss over it. You know, I never denied that it was devastating. And I got fully into the devastation when it, you know, when it full, when it fills your body and you go, I, all you can do is cry. I never tried to suppress that ever. 
but I also didn't want to stay in it, you know, 24-7. So, you know, when that volcano was over, you know, and all the emotion had gone out of me, then I just tried to be very present for what was true in that second. Like, was I still sad? Well, maybe there was some sadness there, but I'm also having a nice glass of wine or I'm talking to a friend or I'm reading a good book. So I was just trying to be really present in the fact that in not every single moment was sadness. There was a lot of actual joy that was happening interwoven with it. So there wasn't really denial. I love that. I love that. There's always, I did an episode on um, something called spiritual bypassing where we use these beliefs sometimes of everything happens for a reason and all for the highest good um, to totally diminish or decrease the fact that we're feeling pain. And a lot of times our oh. friends are the best people to point that out. And so to hear you that I cried on the kitchen floor and my friends weren't concerned for me and I was actually feeling through and not afraid to feel through those tears. That sounds like learned resilience. But yes, knowing that the tears will end, knowing that the sadness will be not replaced with, but will flow through periods of joy and periods of mourning and things like that as well. Um, I love, I kind of want to shift to how grief relates to your art because when you post uh, images up on Instagram, you don't just post art and say, this is what I'm creating now or this is what I'm up to or this is the hotel that I'm painting in or collaging in. You have these, these inspirational phrases and these calls to action that literally wake up other people to their artistic talent and to their power and ability as humans to be present in the world. And so I'm wondering if you had to post one of your pieces of art along with a message for people who are grieving, which piece would you choose and what message would you say? Wow. Okay. Well, the one that popped into my head which I trust, is it's a piece called Something Incredible is About to Happen. And it was actually named by a friend um, that, you know, I was in the middle of my art career, and I was a little scared at times. <laughs> it's scary being an artist and not having a, you know, you're not really sure if you're going to so-called make it. And she named this piece for me, Something Incredible is About to Happen. And it basically kind of uh, epitomizes how I think about life, that even though it may not look so great on the surface in any given moment, I truly believe that's the, the truth, even though in the moment it may look awful. Oh, I love that. And that's what you would tell grievers as well. I would. And the other one, actually, let me give you a second one. The other one is actually it's my life motto, and it's called... Um, this moment is my destiny. And that's probably the one, both of them together are how I kind of live my life. That even though, like for instance, this week I have to do a lot of work for my day gig and there's a lot of things I'm going to get into that, you know, aren't that pleasant that I'm going to be doing. But I continually pull myself back to the moment and say, no, this moment's my destiny. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And that's how I've gotten through all the tough times in my life. That Instead of resisting it and saying, no, I don't want to be here or glossing it over and making it, you know, like sunshine and roses, I go, no, I'm supposed to be right here. I'm supposed to be on the kitchen floor crying. So cry it out. I mean, really cry. Don't just like baby cry. Cry. And then the next moment I might be reading a book and no tears. There's no tears present. I can't even feel them. So it's kind of like being all in. 
but all in honestly. Wherever I am, this is where I'm supposed to be, so I'm going to be completely here, and no matter what it looks like. I absolutely love that feeling of being all in because that is something that took a while to click for me as a person who is grieving as well because we all grow up with different stories about grief, like you're not allowed to cry or you have to go cry in your room or we can replace the loss so there's no reason to cry, like all these things. And so I just love the idea of grief being all in. If if somebody is looking to go all in and maybe crying isn't their choice of expression, what are some other tips you may have for for grievers who are in that darkness right now? Well, there were many times during like all these different periods when I was really sad that I wasn't maybe, you know, crying was the response when I uh, lost my marriage. But other times it's not crying. It's feeling this um, pain in my heart. And, you know, you feel like this heaviness in your body where you just feel like, oh, this is like, you know, like a lead. Like you're walking around with this thing that's so heavy. And when I'm in those places, instead of trying to talk myself out of it or, you know, trying to like say, oh, this is supposed to be like this. You're meant to be here. So just buck up. Instead, I'm saying to myself, just hold that pain. So it's almost like holding a child, but you're holding yourself. So I allow myself just to feel the heaviness. I'm just completely present with my own pain. And I'm not crying. I'm just, it's okay to feel bad. But for me, if I really go into fully feeling bad, it lifts. Just like crying goes away. You can't cry all the time either. And then I find myself an hour later going back to my, you know, a normal place, which is, you know, I'm just fine. But it's not denying, you know, I don't deny that, you know, in some moment I just may not like what I'm doing to the point where it feels like a lead balloon, you know, is holding me down. So I just allow myself to feel it. But the key is feeling it without all the mental chatter. So I feel bad, but I try to let go of all the thoughts because sometimes the thoughts are actually a way to not feel the pain, actually. You know, if I can keep, like, trying to mentally analyze it or mentally talk about it or or accuse people or kind of, like, talk, 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 talk about, you know, about it in my head, that kind of dissipates me actually feeling the awfulness. So if I just kind of like silently just hold myself, it's like being totally present for a child and not trying to talk them out of feeling better or feeling worse. You know, like it's okay to feel bad. So I allow myself to feel bad and then it lifts. If you had to put your finger on the one, the one thing that helped you come back, what would you say that was for you? The one thing that's helped me come back probably my most of my life is completely surrendering to what I've been given. So I continually, I use different words for it for different parts of my life, different times of my life, but it always comes down to the same thing, that I accept that whatever is happening, whether it's good or bad, is somehow going to take me to a better place. So can I just surrender and follow what it is that I'm being given now, you know, whether it's cancer or, you know, a husband leaving or job coming back that I didn't want, you know, somehow those paths have always led me to someplace pretty extraordinary, even though in the moment it's the worst thing that could have happened. But there's an inner trust because it's always happened this way that every devastation 
if I'm, I fully am allowed to mourn it and grieve it, it lifts. And I follow the next thing that comes along, the next whatever it is. You know, like I got a, I got a job that I didn't want, but that job actually saved my butt. And it's been, you know, quite the amazing gift for me. I'm going to say it again, but it feels a lot like coming home. And that's a, that's a mantra I use for myself a lot. Mm-hmm. It's just, this is, this is coming home. This is coming back. This is facing the present and your grief and your heart and your inner child with clear eyes and just saying this is where and who we are right now and that's okay. I'm just loving the space that you're creating today. I'm soaking up the space that you're creating today. I have one last question for you before uh, we get off the call today and we tell people where we can find you, but I want to know what has changed besides skill and besides style in your art kind of in the before and after of this period of what you call devastation? Hmm. What's changed? Yes, great question, Shelby. Um, before I went through this, the, the big devastation, which was uh, the ex leaving, I used to do very detailed uh, 3D, three-dimensional collages that were very intense. They were like putting together a 100 little pieces of paper that created a puzzle that looked like a painting, but it was actually a collage. Very, took me a long time, very intense work. What that's morphed into is me learning to paint. So what I've learned over the years is to follow what my heart is wanting to do. So I did these one, this one style of collage for a very long time, which is on, you know, and I still sell those things, but I, about a year, about two years ago, I just had this, this like yearning to add paint to my collages. So that's what I do now. So I actually paint and collage at the same time. And it's actually freed me up. You know, now I'm much more expressive. It's not so, it's actually what I, I can express what I feel in the moment as opposed to I'm creating something over the course of a year because every collage took a year before. So now I can create one, you know, it still takes me a while, but, you know, maybe a month or maybe even two weeks compared to a year. So that's what it is. I'm just more free as an artist, and I'm hoping that continues. You know, when I quit my job, I can't wait to take art classes and learn new techniques and, you know, just continue to evolve and not keep going doing the same thing, but doing something even more expressive of who I am as I grow. That feels so joyful and so free and so fitting for coming back from everything that you have. You're like, I haven't chosen this. I mean, you didn't even really choose to be an artist. You just woke up to the fact that you were, but you're not even choosing collage. You're not even choosing painting. You're like, this is it. You're not even choosing this job. You don't choose breast cancer. You don't choose divorce. But this moment is my destiny. And lean in. And all that. That's right. I, That's basically I it. I love it. I love it. I'm applauding over here because I think it's just such a cool, Thank it's you, a Shelley. cool space that you've created with your grief. And this is what I love so much about coming back in this podcast is that everyone chooses to come back with different ideas and different mantras and different books and authors and practices and resources that they put into place. And I think the space that you've created yourself for yourself is really working for you, but I think it can work for a lot of people and inspire a lot of people as well. So tell us now where people can find you in your work, if they want to purchase a piece, if they just want to hear some more of your inspirational messages. 
Well, I'm on Instagram every day, almost. My handle for Instagram is the hotel artist, and I'm also at KatherineRains.com. So both of those places are my um, where people can find me. That's nice and easy. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for sharing your story of art and loss and devastation and coming back with us today. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Shelby. It was an honor to and a joy to tell you my story. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Catherine Rains, the hotel artist, for taking time out of your busy traveling and art schedule to talk about art and living life and living grief in each moment. Catherine came back by really getting into the emotions of her grief and asking herself what is true right now. You can find Catherine's work on Instagram, which is how I actually found her. She posts inspiring works of her own art and words uh, just about every day. She's also released a new series on her website, CatherineRains.com, called Take Flight, which speaks to her current traveling lifestyle and the fact that she's excitedly about to leave her full-time day job to go into full-time art in January of 2018. Join me tomorrow, October 12th, on Facebook Live at 1 o'clock Chicago time. We'll talk about the pressure of coming back in the midst of our losses. Please subscribe and tell a friend about coming back because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you always and forever to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line, podcast. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, even if we don't see it, we are growing.